This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Want to know what's going on in your neck of the woods and learn the history and the people behind the events that you love across the state? Get to know the real Mississippi. Check out MPB Think Radio's Next Stop Mississippi podcast on all platforms or on the MPB public media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Deep South Dining, the show all about the culture of Southern flavor and the good folks that love to stir the pot. Good morning, Malcolm White with Carol Palmer. Today we will be so happy to be with you and to share what we have to share. You know, gas stations in the South are a place where you can fuel your car, catch up with the neighborhood news, and get some of the best grub around. Mississippi native Kate Medley's new book, Thank You, Please Come Again, takes a look at how these service stations help fuel the South in more ways than one. Today, we hear from Kate and about her travels throughout the South, picking up stories and photos, this service station, that convenience store, and this quick stop. Good morning and welcome to Deep South Dining right here on MPB Think Radio. Didn't get enough Usher last night. More Usher. Bring it on, bring it I mean, on. He's, he's, he's one of those people, man. He's one of those people. So we'll start off with the Super Bowl. I'm sure people have opinions about the game, the halftime show, the coverage, whatever. But, Carol, what about the Hellman's mayonnaise ad? Malcolm, I just <laughs> thought of you, and I had to send it to you again this morning so you would have it locked down and on your phone. That As cat. our listeners so Malcolm and I have been – Fighting the battle of Hellman's and Dukes for many years Many, now. many years. Okay, you win. Well, I don't win, but I mean, it was a great commercial job. What did you think Kate about the McKinnon cat? McKinnon and the cat. I'm going to have to um, <laughs> say, uh, honestly, didn't I see it? Oh, okay, that's fine. I got to I gotta do my, I got to go back on it, but. I, I sent it to it you was, on it text was, I would so say it was it. The, the, <laughs> the first text I woke up to this morning. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we staying on top of it. Now, in terms of the Super Bowl. Um, meow. <laughs> Mayo. Mayo. Meow. Meow. There, Jacksonians should be very proud. Mississippians should be very proud. And Mississippians should be very proud of the halftime show uh, because of the contribution of the Jackson State Sonic Boom. Java, that was outrageous. Yeah, Sonic Boom of the South. I will say, you know, that was a well-kept secret. It it only started peeping in my sphere maybe Saturday and then kind of, you know, Sunday. It was like it's you happening. You think it leaked when they got on the plane. But I, I, All of a sudden there were, you know, a hundred people at the airport. Because I also was talking about, you know, you're dealing with like some college students and all of a sudden they're going to Las Vegas for Super Bowl weekend. Like, mm. you were just asking me to borrow twenty dollars like how how is that how is something something's going on right on well it was it was fantastic what a what a halftime show uh i can't even begin to name all of the stars java you might want to share it but it was uh comprehensive and awesome yeah and see the thing with the usher with usher being the halftime show like myself i grew up with this with this guy and and you know he's he's one of one 
one. And he patterns himself in that lineage of James Brown, Michael Jackson, that kind of performer. So if you weren't familiar with Usher, you should be now. He just dropped a brand new album. He's going on tour. He's been doing a Las Vegas residency. I mean, bringing all the people from her with her uh, guitar solo, Alicia Keys, Ludacris, Little John, um, Will I Am. It was just and the Sonic Boom Sonic on the Band South. Band it was it was it, just it a, was generous. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I, my feeling was he is a really generous person to have brought all these other people along with him for his yeah, shows he's, he's to give them a moment. I mean, to right. give them their a moment too. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's really interesting now, this entertainment sports crossover, uh, you know, with the Taylor Swift thing and with the halftime show, with Reba, with Lift Up Every Voice. And Reba sing. was strong. Uh, the whole thing was, was just so well done. And Who sang Lift Up Every Voice and Sing? Lift Every Voice and Sing? Um, Andre Day. Andre Day. She, she is. Beautiful voice. Yes, top tier, top tier. Okay, you know, it's a busy week. Uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, is actually Mardi Gras Day, and some of my friends are going down to New Orleans. Some of your friends uh, have their car packed. The engine's <laughs> running, Mal. You left running. the car running in the parking lot. And uh, then Wednesday, of course, uh, is Valentine's Day. So busy, busy, busy. A lot going on. That, and, and, you know, Valentine's Day is a very active uh, holiday for restaurants and eating out. So I wish all Indeed. of our fellow restaurateurs good luck and 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 a great Valentine's Day. It, I remember back when I was active, it was really Java one of the busiest days of the year. It's one of the three busiest, as I recall, from my time. There's New Year's Eve, Valentine's Day, and Mother's Day. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Man, Father's Day was not in their list. It's there, you're grilling. We're on way, we're way Day. on down yeah, the y'all list. Are way on down the list. <laughs> Here's some socks. There you go. All right. So soap on a rope. <laughs> so, Kara, I was sharing with you earlier. I've been dealing with a slight health issue. I have high potassium. Now, our listeners may be thinking, what does that have to do with Deep South Dining? And I'll tell you what it has to do with Deep South Dining. If you have high potassium, you have to go on a killer diet to keep it in check listen to this list no potatoes (gasps) no tomatoes no bananas no dried fruit no dried beans no all these things that i live on i know what's funny about this to me is the whole world has low potassium and And here i am high potassium the other thing is i've been on a diet for most of my life you are the skinniest person, the thinnest, most active person, and now you know what it feels like to be on a diet. And and I'm not 100% on it. I'm, I'm just trying to be mindful of this high-potassium foods. Yeah. Like the banana bread with walnuts I brought in this morning are two things I am not supposed to eat. So thus... Carol and Java get a huge. We get to reap the benefits. <laughs> Ban- <laughs> banana your, bread. Your high potassium. Hey, my but wife Java, you know what I'm talking made. about. There ain't no Malcolm without taters and maters. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Manners, maybe. Now, she also made, Carol made the banana bread with the, uh, with the walnut. She also made a chocolate tart, which I have gifted to you two. And, you know, for our 
uh, Super Bowl meal, we had sheet pan nachos. Saw a pick of it. And pizza from Polito and a chopped salad made of cucumbers and tomatoes that my wife made. And of that, I'm only supposed to eat about half of it. <laughs> but I cheated because it was the Super Bowl. As many people would say, they cheated because it was the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, I drove in torrential rain to Clinton. That's 20 miles from where we live because my sweet husband had a hankering for a pulled pork sandwich. Oh, wow. He's the so luckiest man on the planet. Really he is. He wakes up and he goes, I, uh, I think I'll have I, I know uh, it. I can't believe baked it. chicken and Carol in the car. Because uh, it was coming down yesterday. Whew. It was coming down. Man. Uh, Cooking and Coping, our Facebook page, has been rather busy this past week. And our great friend, Tim Pierce. He's back. Is back and he is posting and he got on the thread about the cornbread salad, Carol. You know, Malcolm, it's amazing what you start. We started it a few weeks ago. A friend of mine had a cornbread salad in Corinth and I thought this is something we can talk about. And we posted it and people talked about it. And then Tim comes back. And, and, and reinvigorates the whole conversation. Post a recipe, uh, photographs. So, uh, yeah, his, more about his cornbread, cornbread salad. cornbread salad was like uh, vegetables with some cornbread. Yeah, well, it was chop, a lot of vegetables. It looked really good. Chopped vegetables, lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers. There was, an, there was a, a disagreement about black beans. Exactly. By, you know, one poster. Uh, as to whether or not they belonged on the cornbread salad. So, Well, we are so happy to see him uh, back and active. He's making up for lost time. Um, yes, and we're glad that Brant's health Brant is healthy is, and is out of the hospital. And, and uh, he can devote time to teach all of us how to cook and plate food. Indeed. So anything in your world worth uh, noting yeah, other than— I mean, uh, Going for a barbecue sandwich in the rain? (laughs) Pulled pork sandwich. But he was so happy. I felt bad about my snarly attitude. Um, I cooked chicken piccata this week, and it was absolutely delicious. And um, then Joe Sherman cooked it. So we had a little chicken piccata thing going this week. All right. Well, we will hear from our great friend Kate Medley, who is going to be joining us about her new book, Thank You. Please come again. We also talked to Kate about the inspiration of the book, her time spent working alongside you in some instances at Whole Foods Market, and her work uh, on civil rights cold cases. And this is our nod to Black History Month here in February. We always want to add a segment about that. And Kate has interesting tales uh, about her time photographing and working in the civil rights cold cases. So we are so happy to have our great friend Kate Medley join us today. Kate uh, is a native of Jackson, Mississippi, someone that uh, I have known a long time and Carol as well. But she is currently living in Durham, North Carolina, and she's based there as a visual journalist and a filmmaker documenting the American South. Her work focuses on storytelling and environmental portraiture and often exposes issues of social justice and the shifting politics of the South. As a kid growing up in Jackson, Mississippi, Kate's very first job 
was making snowballs at a gas station. Welcome home, Kate. Hey, Malcolm. It's good to be home. <laughs> so tell us about that snowball job. Well, uh, jumping right into it, I was uh, in middle school, and a classmate's dad popped up a snowball stand on Northside Drive, and he was looking for a little extra help, and I was looking for a couple bucks and unlimited snowballs. Yeah. So, you so know, it was a summer, a summer gig? It was a summer gig. I mean, you know, it... They were, I, I probably held down a few shifts, and that was enough for yeah. 12-year-old Kate. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was uh, early exposure to some of the, the food ways of the South and the, you know, the entrepreneurship that can pop up in these sort of unexpected spaces. Yeah, they're fascinating, and the South is literally littered with them. And uh, your new book – what we wanted to have you here today to talk about is a photographic road trip. Thank you. Please call again, which is a sign you will often see on these doors. I'm going to correct you real quick. Thank you. Please come again. Oh, thank you. Please come again. Okay. But it is a sign one would often see on the door of a, of an establishment. And I assume that's what you've Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a sign that, you know, many people will recognize if you go to Home Depot to the signage aisle, you know, it's right there beside the exit sign. Right. Um, And and, no trespassing. Exactly. Um, And so you see it in a lot of shops. You see it, I mean, in a lot of gas stations and a lot of stores. You see it um, as you fill up the tank and you see the little gallon numbers rolling. And then when you check out at the, at the, tank it says thank you please come again now kate i will say one of the one of my favorite signs in the book and i don't know if malcolm was going to bring it up is the one where it says please call this number uh johnny or what i forget the name will come right over and get you whatever you need (laughs) because that is so i don't know another word to say but that's so southern like that's just this i i know that sign (laughs) i hear you java and now we all have that man's cell phone number (laughs) Real number. If you call him, he's going to come and get you what you need. We should call him. Bless his heart. Now, which store was that? Because I remember it, too, and there was a reason why you could call him any time. That was a store. Um, at, to my knowledge, it's no longer there. It was up by Moon Lake. Yeah, Moon Lake, because they probably had these uh, temporary. They didn't have permanent residences. They had these people who had weekend homes. And exactly. Such. Yeah. Exactly. It was called the BMW Pit Stop. And to my recollection, BMW was, uh, in previous ownership, someone's initials. And when this guy inherited the shop, um, he decided to keep the name and that it then now stood for Bite My Worm. <laughs> Do with that what you will. Yeah, Obviously, it, the store sold fish bait as well. It, oh, it sold everything. <laughs> so, uh, again... The correct title is Thank You, Please Come Again, How Gas Stations Feed and Fuel the American South. That's right. Nailed it. So this is your – this has been a long-time fascination and journey for you. You've been photographing service stations, gas stations, these these joints for how many years? Um, you know, most of the images in this book span about 10 years. Um, it was about 10 years ago that I started, um, you know, going out with, with greater intention to document these spaces while we still could. Um, that said, some of the images in the book, I really mind my archives because working as a photojournalist in the South, when you go out 
to cover small town news, you know, often you find yourself at the convenience store talking right. to the cashier or talking to the people in the cafe. Um, and so some of these images reach back, I think, to 2006, 2007 um, that just, you know, happened to to be documenting gas stations. Uh, but the bulk of it, I would say, is 2013 to 2023. And, and reading about your work history, it says that – your roots being in Mississippi, you, you have in the past investigated civil rights era coal cases, covered the devastating impacts of Hurricane Katrina, and chased down hot tamales and cool lickles in the Mississippi Delta. You know you like a cool lickle. You know I do. <laughs> you know, I never heard of a cool lickle until John T. Edge told me about his his own fascination with them at a Southern Foodways uh, symposium one time, and then I begin to notice, and then I begin to see them everywhere. Yeah, so tell our listeners what a cool lickle is. Um, well, so a cool lickle is short for a Kool Aid pickle, and I mean, you know, it, it's what you're imagining, and you can probably taste it without me having to tell you anymore. <laughs> um, you know, you take this gallon bucket that the pickles arrive in, and you essentially pour a packet of your favorite color of Kool-Aid in there. And let it marinate. And then you just let it ride. <laughs> you got a little salty, a little sweet. Um, actually, you know, John T. and I, uh, I think it was 2007, he wrote an article about Kool-Aid pickles for the New York Times. And I was the photographer on that piece. And we visited a convenience store gas station in Cleveland, Mississippi. And, you know, it's kind of an after-school special. The kids mm, rolling off yeah. the bus and they each, you know, pay 75 cents and get themselves a Kool-Aid pickle and keep on going. Kind of like a snow cone. Exactly. But different. A little bit different. Java, are you familiar with the Kool Lickle? I'm familiar with the Kool Lickle, but it's not my, you know, it's not my thing. Okay. But I but they they are they on the shelf and right there for whoever, you know, that's your fancy Kool Lickles in all flavors and colors. You still see them, don't you? <laughs> oh yeah, they're and oh, yeah. they even started to individually package them so mm-hmm. you don't have to get it out of the jar. You can just get your individual cool hmm. Yeah, I mean, kind of what you're saying, Java, you would see them, at least back in 2007, you'd see them up by the cash register next to the pickled eggs and pickled pig's feet right. and pickled Kool-Aid. And the cigarettes. And, and the cigarettes. Rolling paper and yeah. all that stuff. Pickled Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> pickled Kool-Aid. That's so funny. So um, let's talk about where you came from and talk about growing up in Mississippi other than working uh, for a while at the snow cone stand. You you grew up in Jackson, right? I grew up in Jackson. Yep. I um, am a product of Jackson public schools, proud, proud product of the Jackson public schools. Um, And when I, what high school? Murrah high school. Oh, a fellow Mustang. Hey. That's what I'm talking about. See, now I felt it. we got now it. I felt it when you came in. Okay, you can feel it in a stride. 1400 right. Merrill Drive. That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So in high school, I I took a class at Millsaps College. Um, I think the summer after I graduated high school, from Kay Holloway. She was teaching yeah. color slide photography, and. Um, She was great. I mean, she laid the foundation for what has become my career. Um, uh, We didn't have a whole lot of rules in the class that summer, but I remember she said, um, no cats and no cemeteries. Otherwise, we were (laughs) free to photograph, you know, whatever we wanted. Um, So I started making pictures down at the 
tailgate market at the farmer's market, I think on Woodrow Wilson, the old farmer's yeah, market. Yeah, the old one, which is kind of still there, but it's had some difficulties. Um, and, you know, that summer, I remember driving around the country outside of Jackson with my father, and he would do the driving, and I'd look out the window, and um, he said, just tell me when to stop. <laughs> And so we'd pull off and, you know, talk to some people sitting on the porch. And that was really my first experience. Um, it was my first experience handling a camera, um, which I now know is a very small part of the job. A, a much bigger part of the job is learning how to approach people outside of your own community and talk to them about what you're doing and, you know, gain trust and gain buy-in and gain their participation. Um which is a big part of, you know, what I'm doing in this book. I'm going into communities, most of which are not my own. And I'm a stranger walking in off the street unannounced. Um, and I'm trying to explain to them, you know, why I think what they're doing is special and unique and deserves to be celebrated. And I'm, I'm hoping that they'll let me stick around for a couple hours and document the space and the people and the culture and the work that they're doing. Yeah, I, you know, being interested in photography myself, I know 60% of it is gaining the confidence of your subject because otherwise you're not going to get a good photograph if they're not digging it. And, exactly. Yeah. And I know you spent time, you had to have spent lots of time with these people to gain their confidence and get them to allow you to get next to them and the sort of vulnerability of being photographed. It's not something that most people are comfortable with, so you must have worked at that part of it. Uh, I continue to work at that part part of it. Every time I you know go out in the world as a photojournalist to do this kind of work, um, and you know there are about seventy five service stations reflected in this book um, across eleven states, and I probably photographed you know twice that many, and and then I I visited a lot more than that. Um, you know there. You walk, you walk into some of these places, you're, you know, you're driving down the highway, and for some reason it catches your eye, and you slam on the brakes, and you, you, know, you approach the glass door, and you pull it open, and you hear a little bell jingle, and you walk inside, and you're not sure what you're going to get. Right. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I've sort of developed this process of assessing, is this a space that you know, d deserves to be part of this project and brings something to this project? And if it is... I, I try to, you know, have a conversation with the person behind the cash register. And if I'm lucky, that's the owner or, you know, the owner's brother um, and get buy-in from that person. Um, and most of the places where I stopped were very welcoming. They didn't always understand the gist of the project, um, right. but most of them were very welcoming. And, you know, some, all these communities, not my own, um, as part of my job, you know, I am often a little bit uncomfortable in situations, but as part of my job, you know, I, I have trained myself to move past that. Um, in some situations, I could feel the tenor in the air that other people were made uncomfortable by my presence. And so, you know, some of these I would just move along um, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to stir that pot too much. Right. Um, There's but, nothing to be gained by stirring the pot. Exactly, yeah. You simply um, want a story. You're looking for a story. Exactly. And so most of these people welcomed me with open arms, and uh, some of them I was lucky enough to return back to again and again um, yeah. and to create this book. 
So after high school, uh, you went away to Montana. Uh, talk a little bit about that decision and why you chose the University of Montana after uh, Jackson Public Schools. Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was 18 years old and I was ready to get far, far away from Mississippi. Um, yep. And so I did. I went out to Montana. I got a summer job working at Glacier National Park. And I called home from the only pay phone within about 30 miles and told my parents that I wasn't coming home at the end of the summer. You liked it out I there. I liked it a lot. I caught that bug. Um, <laughs> then I stayed for four or five years and... Uh, it was a it was a real wonderful chapter of my life. Um, I, I eventually found my way to the University of Montana in Missoula, and you know I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to study, but I sort of cast it about for a while, and went into the journalism school one day, and the head of the journalism school was a guy named Jerry Brown from Alabama, and the head of the photojournalism program at the University of Montana at that time was a guy named Keith Graham who was Java, a fellow graduate of Murrah High School in Jackson, Mississippi. We're everywhere. We are everywhere. <laughs> I had found my home. <laughs> so you got a degree, and then you returned to the South. You returned to Oxford, to Ole Miss, to study uh, yeah. Southern studies. Yeah. I, um, so I'd studied journalism in, in undergrad and started working for worked for a weekly paper out in Montana, and then I came back to the South by way of daily newspapers and Chattanooga and Charlotte. Um, oh, so you were working professionally before you decided to go to grad school for just a, a couple of years. Okay. Um, and yeah, I uh, I found my way to the Center for the Study of Southern Culture in Oxford, Mississippi, at the University of Mississippi, um, and I went into that program um, with a goal of you know really trying to understand. This place that we call home, um, trying to understand Mississippi and Jackson and my family and this region and um, and studied a lot about the civil rights movement. I wrote a thesis about the civil rights movement. Um, and during that time, um, I started hanging out with people who studied food and uh, that that changed the trajectory of my life. Um, that I, I didn't realize that you could study a place by way of food and 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 take food seriously in that way. And to pull it back to the book, Kate. Um, speaking of, you know, you said you studied about the civil rights movement and food. I like this. Is a photo book? Is it a is is the proper a coffee table book? Is that the proper? Call this a coffee table book. Okay, yeah. because there is some great and wonderful pictures in it. But you also have a few, um, you know, few stories that you tell, and one that I found was really kind of fascinating about some of the black owned gas stations and how food really became a centerpiece in them because of back in those civil rights times, it wasn't really safe to just travel throughout the South. So that black owned business, that black owned gas station had to become a one stop shop, clean restrooms, clean um, restaurant, great food, you know, talk about that a little bit. Totally. Yeah. I mean, um, like you're saying it, especially, you know, we, we often talk about it in sort of the sixties and the seventies, but um, yeah, it, it, it extends far beyond that. Um, so, you know, in that era there for a while, um, black travelers could rely on, on what they called the green book, um, which was first created by a, a black mailman in New York 
to be a guidebook for people um, as they were traveling across the country during a time uh, when it was dangerous to to do so um, for black folks. And um, I think they called it the the Bible of of black travel. Uh, And so, you know, this this book would tell you, you know, where it was safe to stop and fuel up and get a bite to eat and go to the restroom and um, sit for a while. And uh, and so, like you're saying, they really had to these these places were few and far between, um, literally, figuratively, and and they had to be everything for a traveler. Um, they they had to serve food that was both inexpensive and quick and portable. Um, a lot of which you know you still you still see today. You still see these sort of portable foods, these sandwiches, um, tacos, um, slice you know, saran wrapped slices of pound cake. Something you can pick up, pick up and go. Um, there are, to my knowledge, very few black on, black owned gas stations currently across the state. By by one count, I read uh, there are fewer than fifty. Um, a couple of those are are profiled in this book. Um, yeah, and they're, you know, the one the ones that I was lucky enough to visit. Not only do they function as much more than gas stations and restaurants, but um, I'm thinking of one place in Alabama, a guy named Fred Eaton runs a full-service service station there, cash only. And uh, so he'll come out and, and fuel up your tank, and he'll do your oil change, and he'll balance your tires. But then also he's you know hosting um, voter sign-up days. And uh, you know, he, he's really the centerpiece of that black community in lower Alabama. Um, it, he, you know, he— he opens it up for people to sit and stay for a while, and he tries to make his community better by way of that space. You know, speaking of s- statistics, uh, in your book I learned that 61% of the gas stations in our country are owned by immigrants. Uh, and I just find that fascinating, and I wondered what does that number mean to you? How, did, how, did, how does this manifest itself in your book and in your work? Yeah, um, you know, when I first set out to to work on this book, uh, I had these grand ideals that, you know, maybe you could sort of chart the emerging immigrant foodways of the South by way of service stations, um, by way of who's cooking in the backs of these service stations and what's on the menu. And, uh, you know, I didn't really find that to be particularly true in rural areas, um, but in urban areas, you know, in the Atlantas and the New Orleans and Raleigh's, um, probably Nashville, I, I did find that to be somewhat true. Like you said, uh, from what I read, about 60% of gas stations across the country are owned by immigrants. Um, there's a long tradition of immigrant populations entering the U.S. workforce by way of food. You know, we, we see halal food trucks in New York City and taco stands out on the West Coast. I would argue that in the South, gas stations fit squarely into that food economy. Um, I'm thinking of a, a great Vietnamese restaurant in the back of a Texaco in Metairie, Louisiana, called Bon Me Boys, where Peter Wynn, um, he, I want to say he's like a late 20s, 30-year-old guy who learned to cook by watching the Food Network after high school. And, you know, he's serving these Bon Me's that are, you know, emerging of his family's Vietnamese food traditions with the Cajun flavors that he grew up around in New Orleans. Um, and so you're getting, you know, a garlic butter fried shrimp banh mi with the cilantro and, you know, all the accoutrement of a, of a traditional banh mi. 
Um, down the road from there, in the middle of New Orleans, I met with a Bosch Al Charisse at Shawarma on the go. Um, a boss and his wife Shannon are, well, a boss is an Iraqi refugee. Um, he and his wife Shannon opened Shawarma on the go in the back of a jet go on Magazine Street where they're serving Middle Eastern food. Um, he's serving the Iraqi recipes that he grew up eating. Um, the story of Peter Wynn is particularly uh Interesting to me because I have long wondered when and studied and thought about when Gulf Coast and Vietnamese cooking and culture would collide and when we would see uh, Vietnamese restaurants along the Mississippi Gulf Coast and certainly Wynn's operation there. I guess it's out in New Orleans East. Is that on Chef Highway? Um, so actually, Peter, Peter opened up in Metairie. In Metairie, okay. Um, New Orleans East would, would be a – man, you and I should jump in the car. <laughs> that is something out there. I got, and I got a long list of places on the Mississippi Gulf Coast that I'm sure you could add to um, – that, that we, we should hit the road together. We should. And, you know, along the coast, there are all these uh, po'boy joints in gas stations. Yep. Uh, Fayards. That's on my list in Ocean a, Springs. A great, yeah. Um, but anyway, the there's the uh, La Bakerie in Biloxi, which combines the New Orleans French bread with the Vietnamese ingredients and, and makes the banh mi. Uh, It's not a service station. It's just a little trailer, really, by the railroad track. But anyway, that's uh, a fascinating sort of discovery, I guess, you you made by doing this work, doing this research and and traveling about. I think it's a a very important part of the emerging food traditions of the South that deserves more attention. We are honored and delighted to have our old friend Kate Medley in the studio today. She has a brand new book out entitled... Thank you. Please come again. It's a photographic road trip of how gas stations feed and fuel the American South. Welcome home, Kate. Thank you, Malcolm. It's so good to be here with you in Java today. We're so glad you came to see us, and uh, we're glad that you came home, uh, leaving the family behind in North Carolina. You've slipped home for, what, a few days, a week? How long are you here? A few days. Left the two- and four-year-old in the care of their (laughs) dear father. Bless him. And, you know, while we're talking about your family, I wanted to do a shout-out to your, your mom and dad, Tim and Jean Medley. Who well, let's are, shout them out. You know, they to me, it. they're uh, emblematic of what's right and good about Jackson, Mississippi. And the fact that they sent you to public schools, I think, is a testament to that. They volunteer. I've served on many nonprofit boards with your dad and your mom, and, and they – they get involved with things that matter, and I really appreciate them, and they're part of the reason why I settled here. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That, that's really wonderful to hear. Um, I mean, they, they are a big part of the reason that I, I do the work that I do, um, and you know, I'm real grateful that growing up here in Jackson, my parents, um, you know, they, always, they always made space in our lives for art and music and literature and surrounded – um, we were, I, always, I feel like we were often surrounded by those artists, those creatives, those you writers um, that really gave me a touchstone for um, the types of work and people that we, we should really celebrate in Mississippi and in the South and in the country. And they supported those people. And they, they always have. And they and, still do. Uh, and they still do. Yeah. So that's a beautiful thing. Go mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, we talked uh, in the earlier segments about your growing up here and going to school, public schools in Jackson, and then going away to 
Montana and then back to Oxford to work on your master's and to get your master's degree in Southern studies. But after that, I don't know exactly uh, what the timeline was, but sometime thereafter, you went to work for Whole Foods. Uh, and, that's and right. That's a pretty interesting concept, the Whole Foods market. And, you know, we're blessed to have one here in Jackson. And I think you were involved in getting that one up and running. But yep. you worked for them for almost 10 years, right? I did, yeah. Um, so I, in grad school, um, I went to the Center for the Study of Southern Culture to learn to, te- to learn about the Civil Rights Movement. And I did that. Um, and I also got an unexpected education in the foodways of the South um, and started doing some work in the storytelling on the storytelling side of uh, food cultures and traditions of the South. And around that time, I, um, I liked Whole Foods as a company. I liked them as a shopper. Um, and I sent them a letter. Um, I, you know, I was kind of casting about for a job, and, a, and I sent them a letter and said, you know, look, you're doing all this great stuff. And at the time, they were you know, buying a lot of local foods from uh, farmers in the South, which is, is a hard way to do business, and most grocery stores don't do that. And um, and they weren't telling that story in their stores. And so I sent them a letter and, and suggested, you know, maybe I could help them out with that and that they could get credit for, for that hard and good work that they were doing at the time. Um, and to, to my surprise, to all of our surprise, they took me up on it. And um, for 10 years, I led the storytelling effort um, that Whole Foods Market to create, you know, photography and film about the people who were producing the food, the people who were, um, you know, the fisher people around not just the South, but around the country and around the world, um, the the ranchers, um, the people who were making the soaps, the people who were growing the lettuces. And um, yeah, it, it was good work. It gave me um, a deep education, both in my craft um, and in food and people and culture. Um, I'm, I'm still grateful for, for that tenure. So, Kate, you telling me you were at the head of those little tags that would be on, on, the, on the aisles, say our local or your local, and they would have a little story about who made the, this hot sauce and who made these soaps? Yep, 10 years, Java. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm so glad you guys are not. <laughs> I mean, you know, somebody has to put, you know, put those things together. And it's just, you know, it's, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was good work. Yeah. I'd, I'd go visit some guy in the middle of Ohio that had devoted his entire life to growing the best lettuce he possibly could. And, you know, he could talk your head off about lettuce for four hours and I'd make his photograph and, you know, write up his story. And, and like you're saying, and live on that little shelf tag in the grocery store all across the country. I'm glad you noticed, Java. Thank you. <laughs> My follow-up question was going to be, and I think you already answered it, whether or not this was a position that Whole Foods had or you came up with this idea and sort of created the position. Um, You know, it's sort of a hybrid of the two. Um, This was back in 2007, uh, and some people may remember um, Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma had just come out, and it was getting a lot of attention, and... Michael Pollan had publicly called out John Mackey and Whole Foods for not buying local foods. And um, the truth of the matter was that they they were buying some local foods. They just weren't really telling that story in their stores. And so they were feeling a lot of public pressure to do more of that um, around the time that I I came calling. Um, so the timing was real good. Uh, and yeah. uh, 
yeah, it worked out well for a while. I did it for 10 years and, um, and then I was ready to, I really missed journalism. I missed news. Um, and, and so I, I stepped back from that and started back in journalism. So your full-time job is your freelancer. Correct. Yes. So I work as an independent photojournalist in Durham, North Carolina, mostly covering national news that's happening across the state. So I, I do a lot of work for the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal based in North Carolina. So you aren't dispatched out. You pretty much work at home because you've got the small exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I, I cover the state, but um, yeah. you cover the state for them. Correct. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now earlier we we sort of touched on your early uh, work investigating civil rights era cold cases. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. When was that? And can you talk a little bit about that work? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I came back to Mississippi in two thousand five. Um, I thought I was just coming home for the for the summer to sort of regroup. And while I was here, I wanted to, you know, I'd, I'd been brainstorming a project for a while to make photographs of the major players in the civil rights movement. And my thinking was that, you know, I wanted to photograph the people that were the leaders really on on both sides of the movement which is sort of an oversimplification of the movement. But, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to photograph the major players, both the, um, the advocates for desegregation and the advocates for, you know, maintaining segregation. And, uh, you know, back to uh, we were talking about Tim and Jean, my parents, earlier, and I remember I was sitting there describing this brainstorm to them, and my dad said, you know, if you're really serious about documenting – the segregationist, um, one of the big ones, uh, a guy named Edgar Ray Killen, is going on trial in two weeks um, mm. for the murder of these three civil rights workers in Deshoba County. And he said, by my clock, that means you got two weeks to make his photograph. And I got up and I went to the phone book and I looked up Edgar Ray Killen and I called him that afternoon, um, and he somewhat famously refused to talk to journalists. Um, but here, you know, I had sort of taken a step back from journalism and was, was planning to go to grad school. And so I said to Mr. Killen on the phone, um, you know, I am a student of the civil rights movement, and in studying this era in Mississippi history, I think it's really important um, that we document the major players and um i think you are a major player and uh we talked on the phone that day for about an hour and um he at the end of the phone call said how soon can you be here and so i drove out to neshoba county that afternoon um and made my first pictures of edgar ray killen in his home and I spent, you know, a fair amount of the next two weeks driving back and forth making photographs of him um, leading up to the trial. And uh, the trial commenced in Neshoba County. Um, and the, the there were journalists there from all over the world. Oh, yeah. And so here I was sort of fresh out of journalism school trying to figure out what I was doing. Um, and I really got an education um, in 
in journalism and that work in photography, but, you know, more in sort of navigating um, press rooms and the ethics of the job and the, you know, logistics and mechanics of the job from some of the best in the business. Um, I remember going back to Mr. Killen at some point in the week because uh, I'd gotten connected with the New York Times and, you know, I never could have imagined that as a 24-year-old, I would be hired um, by the New York Times to cover something like this. But but there was that opportunity, and I went back to Mr. Killen, and I said, you know, I, I first came to you as a student, um, and uh, now I come to you as a journalist. And, you know, I, I, was, I was trying my best not to be duplicitous. Um, and so, you know, my, my role there shifted, and, and to a large extent my life shifted um, in that week as well. And I, I sort of doubled down on my commitment to journalism and to telling uh, what I hope are more complicated and more nuanced stories about the region um, than we typically see. Did you attend any of the trial? Uh, I attended the trial and I photographed it for the New York Times. Oh, okay. So you got a gig out of it, as it turns out. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, and I spent the rest of that summer... Uh, working on cold cases um, around the state, um, including one in Natchez. Um, the There were um, two young black men um, murdered outside of Natchez in Meadville um, that same summer. And the um, man who uh, people locally knew to be the perpetrator of that crime, um, he had long been reported as, as dead. And so the feds had closed the case, um, and I was down there with a couple other journalists, and as we poked around that summer, we learned that, um, in fact, though his family had reported him dead, he had, he had been living a quiet life in the rural area outside of Natchez. Wow. And based on that discovery, the feds reopened the case um, and convicted James Ford Seal in 2007 of um, the murders of those two boys. Did you work with Jerry Mitchell during any of this? Um, yeah, we we kind of worked adjacent to one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have tremendous respect for the work that Jerry's done over the years, and I've learned a lot from his work. Um, and and we haven't worked together as much, um, but I like to think you know we we work work with a similar mission and ethos and hopes okay. and dreams. Well, back to the book. I wonder if you would talk a little bit uh, about the the forward uh, that. Kiese uh, Lehman wrote for it. Oh, bless and that it's, man. Uh, a beautiful story that he tells about growing up in Forest, Mississippi, and going on dates with his grandfather. I just love this story. But talk a little bit about working with uh, Kiese and, and, uh, and yeah. this work. I just think the world of Kiese Lehman. Um, I I hope Malcolm that uh, like like me as I, when I read this essay for the first time, you know, you can. Not only can you see Junior Food Mart in Forest, Mississippi, you can envision it, but you can also smell it. You can smell that fried chicken. You know, you can you can hear the the chatter, the the bubbling chatter in the dining room. Um, you know, you can just feel it in your bones. Kiese Lehman has such a great gift of writing and storytelling, and evokes um, all the senses. I I I can just never express adequate gratitude for the fact that he wrote the foreword for this book. Um, Kiese and I have, have never met one another. Um, I, I hope we can change that soon. But, um, but yeah, I'm indebted to him for sharing his talent here. 
One of the real ironies to me in reading it is that he's been a vegetarian for a long, long time, and he ends up writing a foreword to a book about service station, gas station food. Yeah, you're not going to find too many vegetarian options at your favorite gas station. Well, he what? focused on the, the potato logs. Yeah he, yeah, he did focus on potato logs, but what my favorite line was, my favorite restaurant served gas. Yeah. Like right? you, to to say it in that way, mm-hmm. because sometimes this is what it is. We're going to the store. It's just oh, it's a gas station, but they got the best food, and you know that's why you're there. Pretty yeah. much. I mean, hey, you can go to a lot of gas stations here in Jackson proper and find some great meals. Oh, that's true. I was I was y'all y'all brought up potato logs. So let me just say this much: I was traveling with somebody yesterday in the Mississippi Delta. And and she's from Michigan, and she studies food all over the country. And we stopped at a double quick in Leland, and she said, she she said to the lady behind the, the hot table, she said, "So, you call that a potato log?" And I said, "You telling me you never heard of a potato log?" And she said, "Well, I've heard of a potato wedge." <laughs> <laughs> she said, "There's no, there's no other place in America that you're going to find a potato log." <laughs> Where they get those potatoes? Yeah, right. <laughs> and that sucker, you know, is about two inches by, you know, it's about two yeah. inches wide. Substantial log. It was about half of a potato. Wedge, so I, th- I would argue it. it deserved to be called a log. Sometimes I've seen it like quarters, potatoes just quartered and fried. I mean, and that's a big. Wedge. That's what this was. It's a quarter. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a meal. I like them a little thinner, but uh, I can go with that uh, if that's, <laughs> you know, what's going on. So the book is out. Um, there seems to have been some sort of weirdness getting the book out. I don't, we don't have to delve too little, deeply little in that. A little press delay. Yeah. But uh, I remember thinking it was coming out earlier and then it came out later. I thought at Lemuria it was coming during Christmas, but it didn't. It, uh, but it, it, it's published by the Bitter Southerner Publication Group, which is the Bitter Southerner, I'm sure most people know, is an online magazine, right? It's not a physical magazine. Um, but then they have a publishing arm. Yes, that's here. mostly correct. The Bitter Southerner, um, uh, they're an organization based now in Athens, Georgia. They've been around for about 10 years. Um, they started, as you were saying, as, as a digital magazine. Um, they now also have a print magazine that they publish quarterly, and they publish books. Um, okay. So that I would guess this is maybe their sixth or seventh book. Okay, so you're in the early stages of their publication biz. Yeah, I like to get in the, in the ground up with the Bitter Southern. <laughs> um, so they started in 2013, and I met one of the, their founders um, by chance shortly after they, they opened their shop. And I came to him and said, I've been working on this little side project about documenting gas station food around the South. And, um, and you know, I'd, I'd love for you to publish some of it sometime. And so they did. It was one of their earliest stories. You've been listening to a conversation on Deep South Dining with Kate Medley and her latest book. Thank you. Please come again. Uh, this Deep South Dining episode is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Stink Radio and is funded by generous contributions from listeners like you. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast using any podcasting app and listen to this episode again wherever you get your audio. Stay tuned now for Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey and Southern Remedy at 11 and tune in each and every Monday 9 a.m. for a brand new episode of Deep South Dining. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.